everyone. Welcome to the Cultivate Podcast through the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and so thankful that you have joined us. And we are now in episode three of a series we're doing. We're kind of exploring Mormonism, kind of what the what what this religion is, what do they believe? Is it is it a Christian religion? Um, it, how is it how is it different? Kind of exploring just kind of the the theology of it. And so if this is your first episode, you found this. I encourage you to stop and go back, catch up, because they're definitely building on each other. We're kind of progressing. And in the initial outline that I gave Scott, I guess I should introduce Scott. Scott's here. Hey, Scott. Hey. Got Scott Sutton, who is an elder, small group leader, long, long time member of the Grove, um, is here with us. And some of you may know Scott. Some of you may not know Scott. Some of you may know, know who Scott is, but you don't know that you know who Scott is. And I do say this every episode. I'm just going to keep doing it. Scott, if they don't know who, you, what, what, if if they might know who you are, how would they know you? It wouldn't be by my muscles, so it's probably because I don't wear shoes. Because the guy that doesn't wear shoes, front left, doesn't wear shoes. Scott Sutton, elder leader, awesome dude at the church, and expert, kind of knowledgeable about the the Mormonism. You've had just a lot of interactions with them, and just God's given you a lot of wisdom and a heart for that. And so you've been sharing that with us, and I really appreciate it. And so we kind of started with this idea of people talk about Mormonism as a cult, and there's lots of different definitions. And for a Christian cult, we kind of had one of these little kind of pop definitions of it's something that has maybe a front-facing agreement with Christianity, uses the Bible, talks about Jesus, but it's a cult because it's wrong in the worst of ways, in the most serious of ways. And we've talked about God, that, that God is not a, an eternal creator God for Mormons, but a but a glorified person from another planet who got, well, for lack of a better word, a promotion, yeah. an upgrade, yeah. a spiritual, physical upgrade into being the God of his own planet. And so now we find ourselves on a similar journey on our planet to become theoretical gods of our own planet. So we got a, we got a God who was a created person on another planet, and then we were pre-existing spirit children of this God. Yep. So then you got Jesus as the firstborn and our big brother. Yep who did not die for sins in the way that we think, did not, like, sin is not the crippling division that happens between us and God, where we need to be reconciled back to God. We need to be forgiven and brought back into relationship, but sin is more just a... It's an obstacle in our path. An obstacle in the path, okay. And so then Jesus died to kind of unlock a door is kind of the analogy that you were Mm -hmm. using. And so, but then the real work that happens in life is something that I do. And we talked, we touched on this. I'd like to touch on it a little bit more. It's like, so, because I've always thought of, and I describe it like that as much as any religion there is, Mormonism is a works-based religion. But then they'll say that they're not a works-based religion. So I ask you, are they a works-based religion? And what do you mean by that? Yeah, no, I think that's a really important question because I think that's where, uh, you know, again, Christians who are trying to engage Mormon friends on this might get tripped up a little bit is, is we, we come in with this maybe preconceived idea that, oh, this is a workspace salvation. And they'll say, no, it's not a workspace. Like Jesus is the only way to be saved. And so then we get a little bit tripped up about, okay, wait, did I, did I believe the wrong thing? And so again, it kind of comes down to semantics. So with, with Jesus unlocking that door that our salvation could only have been done by Jesus and he did it for everybody. So we're saved in that way. There are a few different analogies that are used for that because, again, that is a fundamentally different Jesus unlocking the gate to allow us to continue our progression than 
Jesus has done all things as the reconciliation, the work is finished, we have eternal life by the act of Christ and none of ours alone. And so, you know, some, some that they'll use is, um, is and then one that I, that I like to kind of, I love hearing their parables because, you know, no parable is perfect, no metaphor is perfect, every right. metaphor breaks down at some point. And because of that, it's not necessarily trying to, you know, spar with them, but it gives you a chance to like really understand some fundamental truths. And that's, I think, why Jesus taught in parables so much because it, it really helps you just to visualize truths that are otherwise hard to visualize. And so one that they analogy they use is this idea that you're, you wake up and you're in the bottom of this really deep pit and you uh, see that there's, you can, there's, there's a hole up front, there's light up front and Jesus is up there kind of cheering you on to get out of that pit. And so you look around you, you got some debris, some sticks, some rocks, and you start to pile them up and try to climb your way out of that pit. And you get to a certain point where you, you have nothing more to pile up. You're standing on your tippy toes, you know, stretching it out, like trying to reach the top and you can't quite get there. Right. And that's where Jesus pops his head back over and throws you a rope or extends his hand to help you get that last little bit that you couldn't have done on your own. Mm. And so when we talk about a workspace salvation, you know, could you have gotten out of that pit without Jesus? No, you had to have Jesus. However, you had to do quite a bit of work to get to the point that Jesus could pull you out of that pit. And so it's uh, that's where the semantic kind of it's a little bit. And so you know the way I like to turn that analogy is that that, that I wasn't awake at the bottom of a pit trying to climb my way out. That I was dead in the bottom of a pit, dead in every way. I was spiritually dead, physically dead, relationally dead. And Jesus descended to the bottom of the pit, brought me out of the pit, and brought me back to life. That that the work is completely done by Christ. And so I think in those pictures you can start to see just just the implications of if I'm climbing my way out of a pit. So hopefully to get within arm's length of Christ, that's different from I am powerless and Christ mm. is only powerful. Well, that's, that's good. That's a good way. That's, like, that's a good way of, of taking it. It's like we, what we think of as work salvation, what they, we, have, we have different definitions of those things. And I remember I was a night manager at a Chick-fil-A when I was in seminary. And a lot of the teenagers that I would hire to work night shifts, a, a good number of them by percentage were, were Mormons because you know, it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good friendly place to work and it's closed on Sundays. And they were, they were, they were great. And I remember I was interacting with one guy who's a little bit older. He was a senior and I could tell he was disenchanted with Mormonism, but he couldn't quite really move towards Christianity. And this was the conversation we had. It's like, I do not understand why you say that you are saved by grace alone. That doesn't make any sense to me. And he would just talk to me. He's like, it's just, I mean, you have to do something. Like, if you to you have you have to do something to get it. Like, it's a value. You can't just do whatever you want. You could, and you could just tell behind it was Christian teenagers that he knew who were like, "Man, I got saved when I was eight, so now I can just do whatever I mm-hmm. want." He was disenchanted by that, and so he told me this. He he used this parable with me about a dude that was a kid that wanted a bike. This kid wants a bike, and. He goes to his dad's like, can I have a bike? So yeah, you can have a bike, but you have to, you have to pay for it. And um, so the kid, he's doing chores. He's asking for money, saving up birthday stuff or whatever. And he's putting all his little nickels and quarters and dollar bills in the jar. And after a certain amount of time, goes to his dad. He's like, do I have enough money for a bike, dad? And he's like, oh, well, let's go see. And so they go to the bike shop. He dumps the little coffee can out there and there's money everywhere. And the, the guy behind the counter is counting it up and it's like $72, but the bike is... 
And so is that enough, Dad? Oh, it's enough. And so the son is back there. He's looking at the the bike and is super excited. And while the kid's not looking, he puts $78 out there to, to make up the difference. Right. He's like, that's that's what it is. And similar to you, I mean, it's like, man, I, I understand that metaphor. And it actually, in its way, if I were going to describe works-based salvation, it's actually a fairly beautiful version yep, of kind of absolutely. a Jesus plus works deal. It's a, except that, like you said, dead people can't earn money. Right. I mean, exactly. there's so many different ways to talk about the metaphors. Like the kind of currency that I can generate can't buy a bike. Mm-hmm. Like that, that money doesn't, that money doesn't, that money can't spend here. It's not, it's not good money or the, the, the more, the more brutal illustration would be, I killed a man to get that money. Like I'm not, I, you, that, you, that, your money's dirty, right? There's like the things that we do aren't good enough to create the wealth that would be needed to achieve the thing, much less, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to buy salvation i'm going to buy perfection right now, how much man how much you got to put in the like if i were going to take everything that i have like hey i created one i got one penny and jesus is like great it only costs 17 trillion dollars right, thanks right. for doing it and it really it's an it's an insult it's an insult to a gift for sure if as the bible says that salvation is a gift somebody hands you a priceless gift and you hand them 5 dollars right You've insulted. Especially in that culture where those parables are being taught, you're, you've just completely thrown back in the face of the gifter the, the value of the gift because you're even attempting to pay it off. That's right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, there are other analogies that are, that are similar. And, and, you know, you bring up the idea of like of, of a gift of, of uh, kind of a debt to pay. And, you know, like when I use the, the analogy of being dead in the bottom of the pit, when you use the analogy of, you know, dead man can't earn money. Uh, you know, Paul's words, uh, you know, we were dead in our transgression. Like, these aren't, death isn't in our sins is not our own analogy. This is from the words of scripture that we were dead in our transgressions and we were made alive in Christ. And so that is a different thing than maybe another analogy of, uh, you know, where uh, one that they, when the missionaries will come, sometimes they'll bring videos or pamphlets and will um, just watch them with you and then kind of ask, what are your thoughts on that? How does it make you feel? And one of them that I remember really clearly is, this picture of this young man who's trying to get out, start his own life, um, but realizes he's a little bit short on cash flow to make that happen. And so he happens in town to come across this creditor who's more than willing to loan the money, uh, loans this obscene amount of money that the, the young man apparently squanders a little bit of it, tries to do his best with the rest of it, but at the end of the day is unable to pay it back. And the creditor finally comes and says, you're due, um, pay me back. And the the, the, the debtor, the young man says, well, I can't, I, I don't have the money to. And so he gets thrown into slavery, debtor's prison. Uh. And Jesus comes as the young man's about to be hauled away in the prison cart and says, how about I pay you what this young man owes? Um, and the creditor accepts the terms. And in some ways you could say the story should just end there, that that's still not a great analogy. It still has a lot of problems. Right. Especially if you think about the creditor being God. Who's the creditor? Right? Yeah, for and sure. so it still has problems, but at least if it stopped there, you have a picture of Jesus has done everything. I have done nothing. I, all I can do is screw things up. All The only way out of this is Christ's intervention. Um, but the story continues in this parable where Jesus now turns to the young man and says, well, now I'm your creditor, but I'm going to be a kind creditor. I will make it, I'll work with you for you to pay back. And so if you just step back and think, and again, you know, we were talking about analogies, 
talking about some of this is theological. Um, bringing it back to flesh, like that has implications. If I'm now thinking of Jesus as this really kind creditor who did this great thing to pay off this, uh, this, you know, this nagging uh, right. evil creditor, um, but I'm now in debt to him, that's a very different relationship than the Christ who found me dead in my sins and made me alive. It's, it's who, how I worship, how I talk about him, how I walk my life uh, is a fundamentally different path based on kind creditor and savior. Wow, that's really, it's really good. I mean, and then it's like, I mean, Jesus in, in that parable and all of these parables, Jesus is, he's nice, he's good. But in no sense is salvation or anything that Jesus is doing, in, in no real sense, is it a gift. Right. It's not a gift. It's a, it's a, it's a loan with really friendly terms. Yeah. yeah. Right. Because even in the, even in the bike analogy, if we can, I mean, that's not, that's not the end of it. I mean, it would, it would, based on what I understand about Mormonism, yeah, you've got the bike, but you, you owe dad, you owe dad the $78. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, it's so it's really good because I, I think it is, I think it is important because not just with Mormonism is something that we talk about a, a lot at the Grove where it's like, it's really, it's really important to understand kind of the sneakiness of how a works-based mentality can trickle in and that the imagery of I was dead is of real importance to understand that, that that, that is the state that we're in. It's not that when you're before you're a Christian, you, you're not capable of doing anything good. But as far as this particular aspect of your relationship, my position with God, I'm not an active person that can generate credit. Yeah, I'm, absolutely. I, I am dead. And the things that it's described that, that Jesus can do, I can turn old things into new things. I can turn the, I can make dead things alive. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking the injured and making them healthy. Right. It's dead to life, old to new, things that are in fact impossible. Exactly. It's and, beautiful. It, and, and it's free. It's a gift. And I think that is beyond a doubt the most important distinction between Christianity and Mormonism. Let's real quick here. I just with this, some of the some of the things I think is important. We've kind of touched a lot on the theology, but I think it's important, especially for those of us who maybe have family members that are Mormon or friends that are, or find ourselves like you, maybe just finding ourselves interacting with them a decent amount to kind of know a little bit of the history. We've talked about this a little bit. We've described a Joseph Smith who is the founder or OG prophet, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, um, of Mormonism as someone who was disenchanted with what he saw, what cr the Christianity that he saw and wanted something different. Yep. So how did this new different come about? And don't tell it, tell it the way they would tell it. Yeah. How, how, how did this come about? Yeah. So that's good. So yeah, the, uh, so Joseph Smith, you know, grew up again, New England, uh, New York, kind of revivalist time. And so there's a lot of religious fervor at that time. And so it's kind of swarming about. And so he's kind of caught up in this and the way he tells the story and, and the story changed a few times over the course of his life. Uh, aspects of it changed to fit his theology as it changed. Won't get into that, but the way he tells it is that um, he was basically trying to figure out all these denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian are all saying, come to our church, come to our church. And he's trying to figure out which church is the right church. And so he goes out to a grove behind his house 
praise um, and is visited. Uh, this is where it starts to change a little bit. Um, the final telling of the story is that it was God and Jesus separately visiting that uh, basically tell him that none of the churches are true and that he's actually been called to restore the church that was lost 2000 years ago. And the way they tell that is that there was Jesus. He died and rose again. You had your 12 or 11 disciples at that time. They did their best, but when they died, all the gospel and the truths that come with it died. And then Christianity became this lost, disheveled, broken, um, wrong religion that, 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 you know, Roman theology crept in or, uh, you know, life and theology crept into it. And it became this completely abomination of what was original, what Jesus originally set out to do. And so they say that for 2000 years, we were just like doing what grasping at straws. And then Jesus, then when Joseph Smith prayed that prayer, God restored what had been lost 2000 years ago. And one of the things that was lost is having this kind of living prophet on earth that, that hears directly from God. And, and even this gets a little bit problematic sometimes in, in the, the, the church, the Mormon church is the teaching that I can hear from God, but this person hears directly from God. And so, uh, so there's been a succession of prophets since Joseph Smith. You know, so he, he basically, from that point on in the Grove, was directed. Is, you got to stop saying the Grove. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> and Joseph Smith was at the Grove, yeah. and he learned about Mormonism. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm you just said messing. to tell it the way they tell it. I'm telling I, you the I, way. No, they I appreciate. It. I appreciate. It. I take it back. I take it all back. I take it all back. Go ahead. Go ahead. And I didn't think about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the uh, so after his time in the woods, he uh, <laughs> went to. Uh, he was led to uh, find um, a hidden book, a, a lost book. And it was buried on a mountainside, kind of around the area of his home. Joseph Smith had been kind of involved in treasure hunting and in a lot of stuff at that time, which I think also factors into a lot of the how, you know, the context of how this got started, but found this book, gold plates, and was uh, brought it back to his house. Uh, I think he was told for a little bit that he couldn't translate it. And then um, was given uh, by an angel, the, uh, in the Old Testament references, kind of a stone the umum and thurman that the the high priest would keep in mm-hmm. his uh, you know, vestries when he would uh, or vet whatever uh, when he would go into the temple, and um, somehow those came back into play here. And Joseph Smith would use those to translate the Book of Mormon. And it's been really interesting over the years to see it started as Joseph Smith directly translating this lost uh, kind of form of Egyptian language that originally was allegedly written in, right to. Actually, he he used this umum and thermum to be inspired to translate. So it wasn't actually direct translating that was happening. It was kind of this 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 seeing, this revelating of what the text said without actually translating it. And so over time, it kind of has has changed. But but the basis of it is that Joseph translated this book, and this is the evidence that he is God's prophet. Uh, and so what he says is binding. Um, there's a whole other we had we talked about the Book of Mormon the. Mormon church actually has three kind of sacred texts in addition to the Bible. There's the book of Mormon. There's a doctrine and covenants, which almost reads kind of like in some ways, Joseph Smith's um, journal In other ways, it kind of almost reads as just a, uh, like a diary of like what happened or just like letters that Joseph Smith wrote that kind of get compiled in. And, um, and then finally the Pearl of great price, which uh, is another interesting one. When I bring up the translating part from earlier, because those as Joseph Smith was traveling from New York, over to Ohio, they settled for a little bit, and over to Missouri, actually, not too far from here. There's actually a, a plot of land they have in Kansas City, uh, Independence, Missouri, that they believe the final temple will be built on in the, in the, before the second coming of Christ. But so they kind of migrated this way. And, and as they did, 
Joseph Smith came across some uh, Egyptian papyruses, papyri, and uh, was told that this is some sacred book from Abraham. And so using his inspiration, this is before the Rosetta Stone had been uh, discovered, came up with this whole story about uh, what became the Pearl of Great Price, about how this is Abraham and Moses, and it tells all these stories. Well, a few years later, the Rosetta Stone was discovered, and it turns out that these were actually pretty common just funeral documents that would be buried with people when they would die. Mm. And so what started as like Joseph being this like this God-given translator, they had kind of had to shift over time to saying, well, okay, yeah, the papyrus stone doesn't actually say that, but this is what this is oh, the, the okay. story that's inspired yeah, for sure. from it. So. Oh, I got you. And then they started experiencing some there was some combativeness or some persecution or whatever there. And and so that that's why they left Missouri, right? right? And ended up in Utah, which is yeah. kind of how yeah. they ended up there. Yeah, Joseph Smith ended up being arrested, and uh, through a few things, he he burned down a printing press. He had also been uh, kind of, um, at this point, he was practicing polygamy, and also polyandry, where he was actually marrying other men's wives, and that started to get him some trouble locally. So he was thrown in jail, and while he was in jail, kind of a mob broke in, killed him, and at that point, the church kind of has this year, two-year period of kind of disarray, where kind of caught off guard, our leaders said, who, who do we follow? And that's where Brigham Young kind of made the, the play to bring the, the pioneers out to Utah. And so okay. the timing of the temple opening up here in Bentonville actually is, an, is going to be happening in June, the, the open house, the temple open beginning of July. And then for the rest of July is kind of this time of remembering the pioneers. And so that's a big part of their lore as well of, of the, the Mormon church's history is those pioneer days where they moved from the place of persecution to this like very sacred nestled valley uh in uh in, in utah okay so you you mentioned something there that probably is a good little factoid for us to have brigham young is actually the name of a person that's right it's not, that's right it's not just a university not just a university yeah right then it, we don't it's like well, i don't know what brigham i know what young means but i don't know what brigham means that's no, right. it's, it's a name brigham young university it was kind of prophet number two yeah exactly okay. i'm gonna throw a theory out here to you. you've probably never heard me say this maybe you have and i want you just to respond to it in the book of galatians paul describes this sect that had come out where apparently somebody had been visited by an angel yeah. and given a different gospel that had a works-based attachment to it. You, you think you're following the real path here with Paul, but an angel comes in and says, actually, it's about following, the, it's Jesus and these rules. Yeah. Fast forward 900 years, a very similar thing happens to the prophet Muhammad. Yeah. He is disenchanted with the religion that he sees around him. He has a vision and... He's like, well, no, none of that's true. You, you have to build on that and create this new path where you are a living prophet and now it's really a more of a works-based deal. Fast forward another 900-ish years and the exact same thing happens to Joseph Smith. The parallels between my, my at least my understanding of those three stories are, the, the, the similarities are, are, are too strong to be coincidental. And I, I wonder, because some people like, I mean, Joseph Smith was just a deceiver. But part of me wonders if this is like a, a spiritual strategy that exists in the spiritual world to find people like this, to give them what feels like to them as genuine visions. Because what seems to be created is, again, if you look at some of the, like a polygamy, works-based, violence, but, they, but there's a visiting of an angel. I just, 
That's just an idea that has to interest just your gut level here response to that. Yeah. No, actually, uh, so I'd been familiar with that passage in Galatians prior to getting exposure, but that passage just really came to life to me. And uh, from Galatians about the, you know, Paul warning about the, you know, the, even if an angel were to come to you with something different, just really just came to life. And, and there are some other passages too, like in Colossians where he talks about, you know, worshiping shadows of things. In Hebrews, you know, the, the book of Hebrews even opens with, you know, in the past, God spoke to us through prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son. And if you ever meet with Mormon missionaries, lesson one is why we need a prophet on earth, that, that, that we need a prophet because the, the, the words of the son aren't enough. And so I see so many kind of seeds and relics throughout um, and, you know, passage in Galatians, uh, the, the warning about this angel. So it happened at the time of Paul that happened, uh, you know, like with, uh, in the Middle East 900 years later, it happened in America 900 years after that, that there does seem, and, and, and I, I don't, I don't know the, 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 that I have a great explanation for this, but it just seems like when, when an angel is, becomes part of the story, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's pulling away to focus on something that is not human, that is, has, has divine qualities, but is not the fullness of the divinity. Mm. And it allows us, if we can accept that, it allows us to accept all kinds of shadows and types and, and half truths. And so the, um, you know, when I, when I think about some of that, that passage of Galatians, it, you're right. It just it resonates loudly mm. uh, in light of this. All right, we're going to wrap up this episode with this, and then we're going to spend we're going to spend our next episode just kind of talking about practical advice that you might have for people who are interacting with Mormons. I'm just going to popcorn you here with some things that are out there that Mormons believe, and um, you can just true true or false. All right, let's do it. the The Garden of Eden was in Missouri. That's true. They do believe that. So pre flood time, Garden of Eden was in Missouri. And that's actually the same plot of land that I mentioned a little while ago that the temple will one day be built on for the final restoration. Next level Mormons have holy underwear that was blessed in a ceremony and they never take it off. So, yeah, so there are garments that they wear. And uh, the garments thing is, it's an interesting aspect of it where they wear them all the time. And they're even kind of, uh, you know, and, and Christians, we do this too sometimes where it's like, the house caught fire and everything burned down except for grandpa's Bible. Right. And so we attribute some like magicness to it. But you even hear this in the Mormon of like, they had their garments on and they were, you know, all their body was burned except for the parts that were covered by the garments or whatever it might be. And so it has this, it's just this interesting aspect of it. But yes, true. They do have uh, garments that they wear underneath their clothing. Mormons used to not drink caffeine, but then the Mormon church bought stock in Pepsi and after they bought stock in Pepsi, drinking caffeine was okay. So I'm calling false on this one. It might be true, but in everything I've ever read and spoken to, the original, so I mentioned the Doctrine and Covenants being one of those sacred texts. Within there, there's what's called the Word of Wisdom, which is just this little passage. You know, we have, we attribute a passage of the gospel, the Good Samaritan. Right. They have this little passage, they call it the Word of Wisdom. And what's spelled out in there is not to drink alcohol, uh, not to use tobacco, um, not to drink hot drinks and not to mm -hmm. get into only eat meat sparingly. And so that's what's spelled out in there. There's really nothing in there about caffeine. So if it ever arose, it was kind of more of a, well, caffeine does something, uh, you know, has an effect on me. So I'm just going to abstain from that too. And so it almost became like a, a plus one to the original command, but was never in anything that I've seen an actual command about no caffeine. And a lot of Mormons I know will happily drink caffeine to this day. Okay, this is, this is, uh, some of those were kind of lighthearted. Maybe I should have started with this one and worked my way towards a lighthearted. Black people aren't 
really fully human or aren't fully God's blessed spirit children. Yeah, that's a hard one for the church. They, for a long time, held on to this idea that the mark of Cain that's spoken mm-hmm. of in uh, Genesis, so Cain being, you know, who, who killed his brother and, you know, God cast out of the presence and he was, became this wanderer, that the mark of Cain was actually dark skin. And part of what they believe also about indigenous people of, the, of North and South America is that the darkness of their skin had come as a, as a result of their, their, their increasing wickedness that, were, that needed a savior. And so that light skin's more desirable and wholesome. And so there were, for the early, probably first 100, 150 years of the church, it's actually just very sad that there was this two, you know, and, and, you know, and in America as well, we've, we've made the parallels with America, you know, that there were, there were two classes of people. Right. And that, that, that if you had dark skin, you couldn't hold the priesthood, which is something that they believe in heavily in, which meant you couldn't go to the temple. And in 1970s, uh, there was a lot of pressure for the church to change this because our country was changing. And so the prophet at the time had a revelation that actually black people can't hold the priesthood. And so to this day, that doesn't exist, that, that segregation, that, that kind of blemish, uh, you know, the skin color being one's better than the other. But up until nine, the 1970s, that was uh, an embarrassing part of their, their history. Okay. I could probably do this all day, but we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just leave it. We'll just leave it there because I mean, to me, it's like, again, it is, it is, it is a quintessential religion if America in the 1800s created a religion. And that's certainly a part of that. So Scott, again, thank you so much for all your wisdom and we'll get together one more time and encourage you guys to keep joining us for that. We're going to talk some more of the practical stuff the next time about how, if and how we should interact and, and love and converse or try to convert Mormons or what do they do when they're trying to convert us. We'll talk about that. Encourage you to join us. And um, we'd love to connect with you. If you've been listening, we'd love to connect with you at our church. And so you can join us online, growthchurch.org slash connect. Let us know that you're listening. Tell us what's going on with you, any way that we can help you, any questions you have. We can find out about our streaming options there to join us online if you're not local. But any way that we can, we'd love to connect and help you. And again, thanks for joining us on our Cultivate podcast and have a great day.